You're listening to the SSPX podcast. This is a series of conferences given by Father Thomas Asher of the Society of St. Pius X on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to be seen as a private retreat, a retreat that you can do while you're sheltering in place or at your house, perhaps with some extra time. For more conferences, resources such as downloadable uh, instructions and information about Holy Week, as well as live mass times, please visit corona.sspx.online. Or for all of our conferences, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now here's Father Asher. cast the sellers from the temple, John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 13 to 23. And the Pasch of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple them that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made, as it were, a scourge of little cords, he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep also, and the oxen, and the money of the changers he poured out, and the tables he overthrew. And to them that sold doves he said, Take these things hence, and make not the house of my father a house of traffic. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign dost thou show unto us, seeing that thou dost these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, Six and forty years was this temple in building, and wilt thou raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen again from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Pasch, upon the festival day, Many believed in his name, seeing his signs, which he did. So, verse 13. And the Pasch of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now remember, just before this, we had seen our Lord in Cana at the marriage feast. We saw him then afterwards go down to Capernaum with his mother, his brethren, and disciples. And we were told that he remained there not many days. So as we said at the end of the last conference, um, there's a very short honeymoon before uh, in the beginning of his ministry and his, his first assignment, so to speak. He goes uh, straight away up to Jerusalem. It's as if he can, he can hear or he's being told that duty calls. Verse 14, And he found in the temple them that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. We, uh, we can ask ourselves or we can wonder, if 18 years earlier, when he was a 12-year-old boy, remember he lost in the temple, so to speak, not him not ever being lost, but of course, Our Lady and St. Joseph losing track of him. But when he was there as a young boy, did he see these same sort of abuses taking place? And obviously being an, uh, only a boy, not being anything, able to do anything about it, he had to simply bear it and, and of course, do what he could to try and bring men to the truth by by listening to the the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, and asking them questions. Now, we see that this is um, our Lord's first assignment, so to speak. So after the joy of the feast in Cana, after the manifestation of his glory by this miracle, we see that he, he now goes up to Jerusalem, and what does he find? He finds a mess. I think sometimes about a, a young priest, maybe in his first assignment, and he gets to a, to a parish or a new mission or something, and things are are full of disorder, and it's it's something that he's going to have to address. 
our Lord is uh, is faced with very much the same um, sort of uh, situation or dilemma, and we see that the merchants are there on the on the temple grounds again, selling the the oxen, the sheep, and the doves, and the the money changers. We see them sitting at their tables. We we might uh, imagine them, you know, sitting and very, very complacent, very established, very confident. And what does our Lord do? Notice that he doesn't act immediately. We're told in verse 15, And when he had made, as it were, a scourge of little cords, he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep also, and the oxen, and the money of the changers he poured out, and the tables he overthrew. So he takes time as he we can we can imagine him, you know, maybe picking up these these discarded cords or strings, you know, the the the, the trash, you know, on the and the and the grounds there of the temple. And he takes these cords and he begins to plate them into into a, a sort of whip. I've I've wondered, you know, what did the what did the apostles think? You know, his disciples that were following him, when they see him come onto the temple grounds and immediately he starts to seemingly pick up this trash, you wonder if they thought, well. Okay, maybe we should we should follow his example. We should help him. And then he leans there, we can imagine, against a column perhaps, and he's taking in this scene and he's plating this whip. He doesn't act with haste. He observes things. He takes time um, to, to reflect, to hit, plan his attack, we might say. And after having you know, taken the time for reflection, after having devised a plan, then he begins. Okay, he doesn't... He doesn't fly off the handle. We notice that his his anger um, is a just anger. It's an anger that is helping him. It's a passion, like it is in us, but it's a passion that is helping him to accomplish this mission of, of cleansing the temple. We have to be careful, especially when we're taken by surprise, not to not to explode, but to, to maintain our poise, to, to take in all of the facts before opening our mouth, and certainly before acting. Notice in verse 15, it tells us that he drives all out. So he doesn't make exceptions, um, and so too we. We have to be careful about um, not applying rules in a, in a uniform fashion, um, you know, particularly in the home. Obviously, older children might have more privileges than younger, but in general, you know, the rules for, you know, the time for the family rosary or the, the rules at the dinner table and that sort of thing. I mean, it should be something that, that parents and children alike all follow. We might consider, too, that our Lord's action, um, the fact that he's, you know, picking up the trash, as we said, he's starting to clean up, he's starting to fabricate this whip. We can say that in a certain sense, he's given them fair warning. It's pretty clear that this, this person is not happy. Why is he making a whip? Okay, he does all this again before he acts, all right? And this is a good uh, a good reminder too when we when we enter into a new situation never to act with haste. Very often, you know, maybe we we get a new assignment at work or we're given a new task and and we see things and we think, well, this is this is crazy. Why is this this way? And we immediately change it. And then after some weeks or months there, we realize, well, gosh, that wasn't a good idea. And maybe the person who was here before me, maybe they did things in this way for a certain reason. We have to avoid precipitation, and especially when it comes to anger. Remember, um, God himself says that, that the, the anger of man works not the justice of God. It's very easy, particularly for, for those of us who are maybe of more choleric temperament, to use this scene um, of our Lord, you know, exercising just anger, as a justification of, of, of myself being a, overly harsh. Let us beware of precipitation.
We can imagine, too, that our Lord takes time and he focuses on the scene in order to give that passion of anger time to come to a boil. Now, in us, because of the wounds of original sin, our passions are very disordered. They have a tendency to to get in the driver's seat. But with our Lord, like with Adam before the fall, the passions in him were completely subject to the reason. And when the object uh, of any passion is present, the passion naturally responds. It naturally rises up in the face of that that uh, that object. And so our Lord takes the time to allow the passion to build up in him before he, uh, before he strikes. And the passions in us, remember that the passions in themselves are not bad. Now, I've already said that they are disordered and we have to keep a rein on them. But remember, the passions are there to help us um, to do those, those tasks that, that God has given us to do. A person who is unable to get angry, there's something wrong with them. The passion of fear can help us to take um, precautions to avoid sickness or death or what have you. The passion of lust in itself is not something bad. It is there to help men and women to carry out God's commandment to to populate the earth and, and, and raise up souls to heaven. But again, all of these things have to be kept in their proper order. We can note, too, that his lack of haste allows him um, time to plan things. He doesn't fly off the handle, which allows him to fight smart. We see him how he pours out the money of the, the money changers. That's, a we can say, a brilliant tactical diversion. They're too busy chasing the coins as they roll around the floor to, to apprehend or take hold of our Lord. Notice, too, that he, he overthrows their tables. And you can imagine that once they... Once he's knocked the tables over, then they they pick up the tables to try and stand them. And then while they're holding the tables, he drives them with their tables out of the temple. Note, too, that the scourge that he plates, we're told that, that they're little cords. And so he has a weapon, but he and, and, and it certainly inflicts harm, but it's not a lasting harm. He inflicts no more pain than is necessary, again, to accomplish the task. He causes a certain disorder, but in order to to bring out a greater good. We ourselves, I mean, sometimes have to be to be very aware um, of causing disorder that ends up bringing about even more disorder. The response of our Lord is thought out and well-measured, and we can certainly all learn from that. Verse 16, And to them that sold doves, he said, Take these things hence, and make not the house of my father a house of traffic. Now, it's been said that the, the ones who are selling the doves, they are likely the, the poorer folk. They're, they're selling sacrifices for the poorer persons. And maybe um, in their defense, they, they perhaps are there more or less constrained by circumstances because everyone else has moved inside the temple. If they were to actually respect the, the temple confines um, and try and set up outside, no one would buy from them because all the other merchants are inside. Now, he is certainly gentler with them, and he even goes so far as to give them a reason why he is running them off, all right? Perhaps they are ignorant. Perhaps they've been scandalized, again, by the, the wealthier merchants and the high priest and, uh, you know, who are obviously are allowing this or perhaps even getting a cut of this. But with them, our Lord, again, is more gentle. He doesn't, he doesn't drive, you know, away their, their stock, you know, or turn them loose. Um, he doesn't turn over their tables, but he simply tells them, take these out, and here's the reason why. 
I've seen before, you know, certain abuses in the in the Novus Ordo. And when I asked why they allowed this or that in the church, the response I got was, oh, well, you know, God loves this, you know, and, and like God's just a big sugar daddy. And certainly God, God loves that men support their families as well, but we can see how he doesn't allow them to do it there within the confines of the temple. The temple was the place where God dwelled. And the Catholic churches, of course, are the place where God dwells as well. We have our Lord present in the Blessed Sacrament, and they are meant to be houses of prayer and not a place of worldly music or behavior, be it selling or otherwise. Verse 17, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. Now, I mentioned before this inability to get angry in the face of an evil This is actually a defect, but let us never forget, again, that we have original sin, and again, the question of our passions being disordered. Um, Let's not use this this incident, as I said before, um, as an excuse to give way to anger, indignation, revenge, or contempt, but let us really strive to to be like our Lord, rather, um, in his meekness, in his humility of heart. This especially holds true in the realm of fraternal correction, where, you hate to say it, but often in traditional Catholic circles, we tend to arrogate to ourselves um, the authority to correct our neighbor when it isn't really our business. It's very unfortunate sometimes when a newcomer comes to visit a traditional chapel, and before they can even get acquainted with the place, they're being reprimanded or, or accosted by somebody you know, for, for not having their head covered or for wearing pants or for, you know, some other behavior. I mean, it is um, something for the priest to address and, and not for, for the average laity, let's put it that way. If there is any spirit that they should detect, it should be one of mercy and of fraternal charity. Now, of course, fraternal charity does demand correction at times, but it shouldn't be the first thing that we hit them with. Verse 18, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign dost thou show unto us, seeing that thou dost these things? It's um, interesting. They they, uh, they don't argue that, that they're wrong. It's almost like they know that they're wrong, so they don't argue. But they simply want proof of his authority to do so. It's sort of like somebody asking our Lord, Okay, where's your where's your, your badge, or do you, where are your orders, or do you have a warrant for this, or whatever. Um, again, you have to wonder if maybe the high priest um, was getting um, a cut of the sales or a percentage of the, of the exchange. And so our Lord driving them out, he's, he's breaking with the status quo. And so they are asking him, by, by what authority do you do this? Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Now, verse 21 is going to tell us that he's speaking about the temple of his body. And we've said before that the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and that we should have, it's maybe something for us to reflect upon, we should have a similar zeal in protecting our souls um, by, our, by our instruction, by our example, um, by the virtues that we practice of modesty and purity and chastity in particular in this world. And to be as zealous in defending the temple of our body as our Lord was in protecting the integrity and the holiness of the material temple built in in honor of his father. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, If any man defile the temple of God, he will God destroy. 
we should really have a, a horror for impurity, for impurity in a special way defiles the body. And this is something that has to be inculcated in children, again, from an early age. And we must be very careful and zealous in defending them from anything that could destroy their innocence. Now, we might make a distinction here between ignorance and innocence, because the two are not the same. I remember a, a professor defining it that ignorance is a harmful lack of knowledge, and innocence is a lack of harmful knowledge. So there is a certain knowledge that a, that a child is going to be given that will be proportionate to his age. And as he gets older, well, then obviously that knowledge will increase, but all the time it will be proportioned. The age in which we live, we all know, is incredibly permeated with the filth and impurity. And I fear greatly, and parents should fear greatly, the, the judgment that's going to be passed upon them um, for their lack of vigilance in watching over their children's innocence. You know, the open Wi-Fi connections in the home, the buying of, you know, uh, smart devices, you know, by which the children can access the Internet. Anything, uh, you know, the most horrible things you can imagine, they're one click away. It is a very dangerous uh, scenario um, and one that demands great vigilance. Verse 20, the Jews then said, six and 40 years was this temple in building and wilt thou raise it up in three days? Now, it's clear that his hearers understood since after death, they know of this claim that he's He's talking about raising himself, his own, his own body up after his death. Now, it's unclear what is meant here when they talk about the six and 40 years. Um, the temple um, was rebuilt after the Edict of Cyrus in the, in the sixth year of Darius, and it was completed in much less than 46 years. Now, Herod the Great undertook a, uh, a rebuilding program and a beautification program um, that took about nine and a half years. But Josephus tells us that the embellishment continued long after, so that it may have been perhaps 46 years hence when these particular words were spoken. Now, verse 21, we've already mentioned that he spoke of the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was risen again from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. So this is one of the things, like many things in the life of our Lord, that will only become clear to the apostles after the fact. Thus, we need not be surprised, again, if we're confused by God's actions or permission in our life. Faith tells us that they will be clear later, and it is incumbent upon us to, to remember and to, uh, like Archbishop Lefebvre, to believe in, in the charity of God, to believe in the love of our Father for us, and know that whatever's happening, again, that is always for our greater good. And we might renew the emphasis here as well, that the closer we draw to our Lord Jesus Christ, the more that our life replicates his, the more that we rest close to him, the, the clearer these things become in our own life and the deeper our faith. The time that we invest in meditation is, is well worth the effort. It is um, something that's going to pay tremendous dividends in, in this life and, and obviously even more in the next. Verse 23, now when he was at Jerusalem at the Pasch upon the festival day, many believed in his name, seeing his signs which he did. Now we aren't told what signs it is that he works, but Origen, one of the church fathers, 
He says that this sign of overcoming the unruly mob single-handedly was a greater miracle than that of Cana. And so, too, we can, we can reflect on that and maybe consider that, that in our own lives, we, it's not necessary you know, for us to be able to change water into wine to win the faith, confidence, and trust of those around us and in order to, to bring souls closer to Christ. But it's in having zeal for the house of God. It is in, you know, practicing um, a vigilance over over the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is our body. In doing this, working that sign in our own life, people will see and people will believe and souls will be saved. So that um, is it. Just 20 minutes here. So a little shorter uh, reflection um, on this, this incident of Christ driving out the money changers. And there was one other thing that I, I guess I'll add kind of as a postscript. I could have, I certainly could have started the meditation this way, but it's the, it's the contrast between this manifestation of Christ's charity and love in making the wine at Cana and then his behavior here in the temple. I mean, these, these are back-to-back events in the life of our Lord. And I can't help but imagine, you know, maybe somebody being there in Jerusalem who had perhaps been at the wedding at Cana and he's been telling everyone about this great guy that he met and how this guy made this wine. And then he sees our Lord coming into the temple complex there. And of course, there's all the hustle and bustle of the, the buying and selling and exchanging and trafficking. And, and suddenly here, I mean, he's telling the people around him, look, here, here's the guy that I told you about. And uh, you can imagine, I mean, the, uh, the shock of the individual. Maybe he goes up to our Lord and, hey, uh, I saw you at Cano. How about, how about making some wine for us? I've been telling everyone what you did. And, hey, I already had them fill the water pots. You know, show them what a nice guy, you know, you are. Come on, buddy. And all of a sudden, bam, I mean, our Lord just explodes and, and starts, starts busting up the place. And this shows us, we might say, the, the, the two sides of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they're two sides of the same coin. God is all good and he's all merciful, but he is also all just and he always remains God. It's a good reminder and a good motiva- motivation, let's say, for us to pursue perfection. My father's house is meant to be a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. And of course, this, this, uh, his father's house, I mean, our soul is the temple of the Holy Ghost. I mean, God dwells in us, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. By sanctifying grace, our soul is not to men, meant to be a den of thieves. So, again, a little something to reflect upon. I mean, and again, we see in modern Christianity the emphasis of God's mercy without respect of his justice and, and his, you know, uh, dread judgment that he's going to pass on all of us. But then, of course, it's true that we don't want to fall into Jansenism and, and only focus on, on God's justice. Um, and his, uh, you know, dread majesty and dread judgment that hangs over us, we have to stay focused as well on his love. It's a balance between the two. In the middle is where we're going to find virtue. So a lot to think about, even if it is a little shorter. Take care and God bless you.